0: Just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Another edition of the Truth Prescription. Today we have a special, special guest, Bob Caffaro, and a very extraordinary individual. And uh, before we get him on the pod to actually talk, we're going to allow him to talk with his fingers. Listen. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful work. Beautiful music. That's Bach. One of the greats. One of the greats. One of the greatest. Bob is here with us on The Truth Prescription. And um, why don't we, Bob, just start with you talking telling the audience a little bit about yourself and specifically where you grew up at and how you came to become a professional cellist. Because that's not a uh, common thing.
1: Okay, well, just a quick summary. Uh, born in Queens, and uh, New at the age of three, we moved out to Long Island, and oh. uh, then it was uh, very undeveloped, and uh, where we lived out, Veterans Highway was still a dirt road then, wasn't wow. even paved yet. Now it's wow. jammed with traffic. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I, at, uh, they opened up an elementary school right down the block from my house, okay. and I uh, actually was one of the first students there in the second grade, wow. and uh in 3rd grade they offered me the opportunity to play a musical instrument okay. and uh they needed someone to play cello in the elementary school orchestra <laughs> so they said i was free to pick any instrument i wanted as long as it was the cello so
0: <laughs> i picked hilarious. the cello they they
1: were happy with my decision so <laughs> and from
0: there you just continue to play and get better and uh you know some so many of us get sidetracked along the way uh, as we were talking uh off off recording that I played the viola for about 10 years and sort of got sidetracked to my own story, which was I chose the viola because everybody else was choosing the violin. So I was <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I want to do something different. Um, so I guess kind of what allowed you to continue because um, that was third grade. I mean, it was there's a whole
1: lot of time between third grade and now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, for this, I have mom to thank Okay. because, uh, you know, I wanted to quit And, uh, you know, I I wasn't from a musical family. Nobody played an instrument. And my friends certainly weren't uh, cultured. (laughs) They didn't play instruments. Right. And um, let's see. In seventh grade, I I picked up the guitar and got very serious about the guitar and, you know, started playing in rock bands. And in, uh, I think, two years, I was lead guitarist in my first of many rock bands. So uh, at about the age of 15, I, I actually got a letter inviting me to the uh, School of Orchestral Studies, a program upstate New York for, uh, you know, New York state residents. And it was to study with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra in something of a training orchestra. And I went for four weeks and it was an event that changed my life. I can see. And at that point I became very self-motivated. But my challenge was I was not serious about the instrument Mm. for Basically, most of my childhood and most of my colleagues, the professional musicians, are people that really were, you know, either children of tiger moms locked into practice (laughs) rooms or they, you know, basically sacrificed their entire lives to that point. So I was, you know, somewhat of an anomaly at that point. Right. You felt felt less prepared. Oh, for a good reason. I was less prepared. So at that point, uh, self-motivation is what saved me. Basically, I, I was... If I wanted to continue in my, you know, brainstorm of becoming a professional cellist, I had a right. lot of years to catch up for. Wow.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I think it's interesting how our lives take different, you know, go through different courses. Um, being in a rock band was probably an enjoyable experience. Right? Oh, sure. That, that clearly, your peers didn't get to have. Right. Um, I think, you know, life takes us through different paths. And I'm glad that you took time off and wasn't practicing ten hours a day at age ten, and then she actually <laughs> played in a rock band i mean it sounds it sounds healthier yeah you know it sounds like a healthier experience um, some of the people that know your story will obviously know that you um, was were able to uh, completely eradicate uh, multiple sclerosis from your body um, some of them may not have some of, some of my listeners may not have heard the complete story or know. Uh, exactly how that transpired. So tell just tell us a little bit about uh, when you initially would, would, was diagnosed um, and uh, ultimately what happened to
1: allow you to uh, beat it. Yeah, well, just to give you a, let's see, a little chronology. In December of 1998, I started experiencing a strange numbness in my right leg, something mm-hmm. you you never, this was just out of the blue, bizarre. Yeah, I went to two doctors, they both surmised just a pinched nerve, nothing to worry about. Uh, two months later, I started to lose peripheral vision in my left eye. So when mm. you've got you know, numbness in one leg and peripheral vision loss sure. or optic neuritis sure. in one eye it becomes something of a textbook case of MS, uh, unless you have some other illness. So at that point right. I was tested for everything you could imagine, you know, all well, rheumatoid diseases, AIDS, Lyme disease, heavy metal toxicity <laughs> down the list, right, right? Everything came back negative, uh, they found three small lesions in my spinal cord that, that were not paying rent. So basically <laughs> that became a definitive diagnosis of MS. Okay. Okay. I still didn't want to believe this. I was in a complete state of denial right. about it. And four months after that, I started to lose peripheral vision in the right eye.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah. you know, you get on intravenous steroids, a thousand milligrams of methylprednisolone a day for three days hmm. That stabilized the situation for a week. And then things went off the edge of the cliff for me. I uh, came down with what I thought was a stomach bug. Started, you know, It was about a week I was vomiting, not being able to keep down food or water. Wound up hospitalized for a very severe dehydration. Wow. I was released from the hospital four days later, and things were so bad. I, I couldn't move my hands. I was legally blind out of both eyes. I right. was incontinent. Right. I mean, you name it. My whole central nervous system was up in smoke. Everything was gone. And I couldn't play the cello. I I couldn't, you know, basically I I had been hopping from one neurologist to another, seeking that elusive misdiagnosis. (laughs) Um, At that point, I went to my neuro-ophthalmologist and uh, he tested me basic vision test. I couldn't even see the largest letters on the chart. Mm -hmm. Gave me a visual field test. I couldn't see a thing. He stopped the test and he said, I'll write you a note for permanent disability. Yeah, and I know what you told him. Yeah, right. (laughs) I told him he could take his note and use it as a suppository. So so that was what changed things for me. And my whole approach from that point was you know, when you're diagnosed with a disease such as multiple sclerosis, you go to a neurologist, they diagnose you by process of elimination, and then you say, What now? And they say, Well, here's the latest six figure annual drug you take this drug right. come back and see me in 1 to 3 months and yeah you're like w- what else should i do and that well we don't know cuz right. they don't no. and i just decided to find my own answers that we don't know we'll hope for the best those answers were not good enough for me so i set out to find my own
0: answers okay and those and those answers through your own research, hard work led led you to certain nutritional changes that you made in your life.
1: Right. So just to give you an idea, you know, that my predicament at that point in August of 1999, when I was released from the hospital, I saw my fifth neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. He ran a complete series of MRIs in my brain and spinal cord. I had over 50 active lesions in my brain. and Some of them were huge. And mm-hmm. I had one in my spinal cord that was just gargantuous. It was yeah. three and a half centimeters in length. And it took yeah. up the entire spinal cord. Wow. And um I started all my own research. Uh one of the first things I found was a website called The Water Cure. I started mm-hmm. drinking half my body weight in ounces of water a day. Okay. Yeah. And I that was when I noticed my first signs of improvement. Okay. And from that point I started researching MS rates around the world, you know, looking for obvious things that experts would have overlooked, right? And you see, you know, your, your very poorest nations have much, much lower rates of MS. You have your right. Asian countries have much lower rates, and you know, basically, I tried to adopt any lifestyle that was, you know, Similar. applicable to right. you know, these
0: lower rates of MS And those, uh, I guess, those socioeconomic communities that were
1: "quote unquote" third world or um, simpler. We could exactly. That. Yeah, because you know, you have people that will essentially live on what you would call a hunter gatherer diet. okay' very, much closer to a hunter gatherer diet than, you know, today's idea of fast food and processed mm-hmm. food and alcohol, tobacco, right. caffeine, stimulants, you know, everything we do today. It's, uh, you know, relatively speaking it's so unprecedented to the human body.
0: That's a great word.
1: Yeah, it's definitely
0: not nutritious. Um, I remember reading a book some years ago that described that we 've turned our bodies into um, human uh, garbage disposals <laughs> you know, well put yeah, that that 's really <laughs> well know? said uh, because half the things that we're eating don't really contain any nutrients right mm-hmm. but um so you you did the water cure um, I watched a video uh, you were started eating watercress, a lot of watercress. Watercress, right. It, um, it was,
1: basically, I started using every experience in my life. Okay. I know you talk about truth going back to childhood experiences. Right. Yeah. Uh, one was a, a short story I had read as a very young child called The Doctor's Heroism about a man who's diagnosed right. with a terminal illness. And okay. the doctor says, there's no hope. He says, why don't you try one thing? He says, go to a warm climate and live on nothing but watercress. Mm. And months later, this man comes back and he's in perfect health. And the doctor can't understand it, you know, right. and it has a tragic ending. The doctor right. kills the patient to find clues oh, to his body. Research, but, right. But that story always stayed with me. And that was one of the things I started doing was living on massive amounts of raw water crests. Yeah,
0: It's interesting. After I, I watched that video and I heard you say that, I went out and I bought some this past weekend and I started, yes, yeah, man, this stuff is strong. No wonder it works so well. This is like a Clorox that, for my body. I mean, that's part of the discipline, <laughs> right? It's a, it has a very strong taste, but I could see that it's, you know, it, it, like I felt something significant after eating it. Sure. You know, just like my body was like, oh, that's different. Right. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever had whorehound tea. It's, a, it's this really super bitter tea that my mom used to give me for, for, for a cough when I was a young kid, but it tastes horrible. It's terrible. Um, Watercress tastes better than, than this tea. This tea is just <laughs> this massively disgusting. However, it gets the mucus out of your body. Um she would always say, if it's bitter, it's better. That's what my, like my that. mother would say sometimes. Very good. But um so let's talk a little bit. I mean, you've you've obviously been through through a lot. Um can you just tell our listeners um if there was one truth in your personal life, we'll talk about the professional after, but in your personal life that going through this whole process, one truth that sort of became crystal clear to you. Um, whether or not you were aware of the truth or not is, I guess, not that important. But going through this process brought you face to face with it. And you realize, wow, this because, you know, sometimes you know things, but then you go through a process and then you really know it. Mm-hmm.
1: I believe it goes back to uh, what you could say is an undiagnosed case of autism or Asperger's. Interesting. And, you know, mm-hmm. my father always disliked something about me and uh, to mm-hmm. quote, my late father, he always said, I had my head up my ass. And, (laughs) you know, relatively speaking, you know, my brother, older brother and sister, they were, you know, very intellectual, very, you know, high achievers academically. They both became successful attorneys. And I was considered the black sheep of the family, you know, the kid who was always in his own world. Mm. And as I got older, I began to believe that that was something of a blessing. Right. And it's funny because, you know, my wife thinks I have, Uh, some degree of autism and Hmm. Asperger's. But if it's true, I wouldn't trade it for anything because that gives you the ability to shut out the world and focus no matter what's happening around you. And I I believe that's one of the things that helped me. So I would say that might be. That might be one. When when you realized it and
0: and you obviously accepted it, um, did you feel, how did you feel about it? Like, you know, you said, well, people have been telling me this for years. I think it actually might be true. It sounds like you felt like this is a good thing. Like, I'm, not, I'm not upset about this.
1: Right. Yeah. Because, you know, if were my father alive today, I would go tell him, hey, dad, you know what you always <laughs> yelled at me for? <laughs> right. This was actually a good thing. It enabled right. me to do so many things in my life. Right. Right. It I mean, turned he, out he, to be a positive. Yeah. He wasn't able to see that. And that. That's one thing that enabled me to become self-motivated and play the cello. It's also right. what enabled me to write a book, something I never thought I'd be able to do. And my wow. mother even says this to day. "You're the last one in the family I thought would write a book." <laughs> but it's that whole bit of being able to immerse yourself, right? So totally in in your own world.
0: And so you you legitimately wrote the book because you know a lot of times people write books, but it's like they work they write a book in conjunction with someone, right? So you 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 provide a large amount of the material, but then there's a person that actually writes the pages right you're saying I you actually sat had down actually
1: you know because i had most of the book basically written and outlined and then okay. it was a, a professional writer okay wanted to team up with me and i okay. sat down with her and she basically started changing everything about the book and uh, yeah. i said no 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 this has to be my story so we wow. went separate ways so. wow that's powerful
0: actually yeah. mm-hmm. that's really powerful you believed in what you were doing and you had the courage to say no
1: yeah, and I had yeah. never written a book before, but uh, you know, I, I, I wanted people to f- understand what I went through. I wanted them to be able to empathize sure. you know, about the pain, about the hopelessness, <sighs> you know, where yeah. I was. Yeah, you know? I can completely relate. Yeah, Because you know, for me, what I dealt with with this fight against multiple sclerosis, a very, very severe case of it, it was not a fight against an illness. This was a fight for my life. Correct. It was yes. a fight for survival, and I yes. was not going to lose this fight. Yes. Yeah. I remember
0: when, when I had my own battle with hepatitis, and um, I was feeling this simila- similarly that this is my life at stake and how every other thing that seemed like it was a problem suddenly didn't become a problem. Because mm-hmm. if you have living or dying on one hand and you have some inconsequential thing on the other hand, it really helps clarify. Uh, things for you—at least it did for me—and it sounds like it also did for you.
1: Oh, sure. You yeah. know, I mean, it's funny for me. You know, not only to be told the rest of my life is on permanent disability. Basically, I'm being told my life is now the, the waiting room before the cemetery. Oh, gosh! And <laughs> not just that—you know—all these things that you take for granted, being able to see, being able to use your hands, being able yeah. to make it to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, all these things were just stripped away. Wow. And When you have everything back, you will look at life in a completely different perspective. Your 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 outlook on it will change so radically that things that annoyed you are now positive (laughs) in a way. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's really. I think it's really difficult for people that haven't gone through a literally life threatening event Mm -hmm. to appreciate. Uh, I would. I would just. I guess have. I would encourage people to look at the little things you know, in their life that may seem um, insurmountable or difficult and remember these types of conversations. Remember a Bob Kafaro, or remember the countless other um, heroes and heroes we have in the world who've gone through terrible, terrible things and have come out on the other end better, you know, better people.
1: Um, That's well put. You know, the, yeah, they, they say it's a, a smart person that learns from his own mistakes, but it's a brilliant person that learns from the mistakes of others. others so, yeah, I like that. You know, I, I I would preach, you know, try and exercise a little brilliance here and learn what right. we know, having right. dealt with these life-threatening situations. Yeah. and how grateful we are for every nanosecond that we're yeah. we're here in a healthy existence now.
0: Yeah, it's big. It's big.
1: The breaths, the
0: daily breaths that you take, they take on a different uh, odor. <laughs> You <laughs> know, almost. Yeah. Um. When when you go through something like that, um. Okay. So the we talked a little bit about the in your your personal life and your in your professional life. Would you say from third grade starting cello to now playing professionally? And, and from what I've read about you, it sounds like you traveled you've traveled the world playing the cello. Um. Is there anything that any truth that any truth that you learn? Any anything that you. Uh, um, have discovered uh, on the, the road that has helped you to um, become, uh, become better or to sur- surmount a particular obstacle? Um,
1: my biggest obstacle would be basically coming from a non-musical family because most of the professional classical musicians, most of them are from musical families where the parents you know, will give that one-on-one training time and mm. You know, most of my colleagues, say, in the Philadelphia Orchestra are people of music families sure. you know, that were basically forced to spend many hours a day practicing. So um, I'm very different in that sense. But that ability, again, I think with the autism or Asperger's came yeah. in to help me that I could be my own tiger mom. <laughs> right. You know? Because uh, I don't know if you've ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I haven't. It's a great book. Okay. Persig actually talks about what happens if a young person becomes self-motivated, that mm. there are no limits to what they will be able to accomplish in wow. life. And wow. I, I, it was funny when I read that, it was like, yeah, that's
0: me. You know? <laughs> right. Because it sounds like dad wasn't really that uh, motivational when no, you no, say that. No, he was, <laughs> and I'm not sure about mom, but I think you're right. Coming from a family that, with no musicians, it, it kind of makes it difficult because you really don't have any role models. It's kind of all coming from you. Right. Um, which is actually a more powerful place to come from anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, great. Yeah. If it comes from you. Yeah. My father, he wanted all his children to be attorneys, you know, so that's why my <laughs> old, no, but, uh, he, when he got his first billable hours, uh, <laughs> after, you know, having legal <laughs> services, uh, right. he was just floored. And at that point he decided, Hey, I want all my kids to be attorneys right. so they can, they can live make prosperously. Money. So, you know, I, I thought maybe I'd, an attorney and specialize in music malpractice or something right you know, right.
0: So. right. I'm sure he was uh, excited when, when you decided you are going to play cello
1: professionally. I don't think he knew what to think of it, but uh, <laughs> you know
0: so you professionally, the truth was that you realized that you had to be a self-motivator, but that was actually a strength mm-hmm. for you. Very much so. Okay, okay great. Um, some, we're going to go to some specific questions. Um, I'm kind of interested in you know how when you were sick, you s- started certain treatment modalities um, to reverse, heal your body and get back to a state of, a state of health. Are there any that you still do today that you were doing during the time when you were fighting MS?:
1: um, Your question would be better answered if you, if you asked, are there any you're still not doing? today because basically i i live a very very disciplined lifestyle i i still drink half my body weight in ounces of water a day okay um i fast for probably 12 to 15 hours every day um i don't eat any processed food i haven't had alcohol in 19 years uh, no recreational drugs i don't eat any meat any dairy okay Uh, you know a very disciplined lifestyle
0: Okay. And when you say no meat, no, you eat fish. I think you eat a little
1: bit of fish. Small amounts. Small amounts. Occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you say you fast,
0: when, what is your fasting time typically? From what well, time what time? I'll
1: normally fast maybe once every one week or two for maybe somewhere around 36 hours. Okay. But every day I go for usually 12 to 15 hours without food every so day. So typically
0: between what time and what time?
1: I'll have my last meal in the evening and then I won't eat until maybe one or two o'clock in the afternoon um, the yeah. next day. That gives
0: you a lot of, uh, yeah, that gives the system a lot of downtime. That's great.
1: Yeah, because there were things that, it was funny. You know, I did a TED Talk in November. You had mentioned you right. had seen it. Charlotte. And when I was getting ready for the TED Talk, you, know, you don't just show up and wing it. You know, <laughs> you, you assigned a coach and they you all training. Oh, wow. You had a coach. Interesting. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're very serious about it. And you're on a clock. There's a big timer on the wall. And if if you go over, they'll they'll rip you a new orifice, you know. Oh, no. So (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) they said, we want you to watch a TED talk. It's an 18 minute one by this Dr. Terry Walls. Uh, And I had heard of her. I didn't really know who she was. Yeah. Turns out she had done what I did. She had MS, very severe case, was wheelchair bound. Wow. And she began her own research, and reversed the disease. And she lives a normal life. She's out of a wheelchair. She bikes, right. everything. And I was like, wow. So I got to know her. I actually yeah. met her in uh, December. I picked yeah. her up at LaGuardia Airport. and We <laughs> spent the day together. Right.
0: I saw the video on YouTube. It was awesome.
1: What's funny is she and I came to very, very similar conclusions. Okay. And she's a medical doctor. So right. she's got a background in you know, science, biology, medicine, me. I play the cello, you <laughs> know, I'm yeah. not Mr. Academia. So right. the funny thing is that we came to the same conclusions and we achieved the same result. Right. And for her, it's all about the cells of the human body, the mitochondria, uh, you know, basically what powers a cell. Sure. And, you know, as far as when the cells start to decline, that leads to an illness. And if enough cells Makes decline, sense. it leads to chronic illness. Makes so it's sense. all about the, the healing and the rebuilding of the human cells. Mm. Cellular level. Okay. Right. And this is she said, you know, everything I did with the water, the watercress, cutting out all the toxic food, sure. you know, all these things made such a huge difference. Wow. And that's only one of the things I did, you know, with as far as diet, there were you know, many other things. OK, you could to, to give me an example. But you of you would ask about my Mount Rushmore.
0: Yeah, that, that that's coming uh, later, but we can talk okay. about that now if you want. Well, um, yeah, yeah.
1: I just was going to make a quick joke. You Please. know, if you
0: if you ate a, a hamburger right now, you'd probably collapse. <laughs>
1: you realize that? Yeah, I, I don't think it would agree with me. <laughs> I haven't had meat in right. so long. Right, right. Anyway, I'm sorry.
0: I just thought about that because I know I also periodically fast. Um, I do a fast every spring um, for 40 days. Uh, it's just basically live foods and water. Um, And then every four years, I do kind of a weird fruit fast for 40 days where I just do fruit and and milk. It's kind of weird. But anyway, um, I always feel so different during the fast and right after the fast in terms of my level of energy, mental clarity, um, creativity. Mm -hmm. Things are flowing. And then slowly I start eating, and I'm going to say this in quotations, regular food, (laughs) normal food. (laughs) And I, I see the decline. So I can completely see how... You could be just your body can be completely transformed uh, and youthful by maintaining this this this, as you you say um, discipline lifestyle.
1: Right. I mean, if you look at uh, the Okinawa centenarian study, where they studied over 900 people over the age of 100 and in perfect health, okay, they live in a very low calorie diet, Uh and you know, Dr. Walls explained this to me that when you fast, your cells go into rebuild and heal mode, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: So basically, that was another thing I started doing. I started really reducing my caloric intake as far as your third world countries in the Okinawa Centenarian study. Okay. Um,
0: You know, one thing, the things that we do, the things that happen to us, they always affect us. But more importantly, a lot of times they affect the people around us. Now, I didn't know you were married. And I don't know if you were married during the time when this happened. But I wanted to ask, like, what affected this, um, the illness, number one, the transformation and then the revival have on your family, you know, your mom, your dad, and then your wife, if if you, you were married at that time?
1: Well, I was married, but not to Teresa. Uh, okay. Interesting. So, well, it's funny how, you know, an illness can affect, you know, a family and very, you know, an illness can bring a couple closer together. It can tear a couple apart, right. you know, it could, yep. and in my case, I would say it was the later it, it really yep. drove us apart. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I, I moved out on my own and I basically lived by myself yeah. while I went through this whole thing. Yeah. And it was all the idea that I can't, you know how you're on a plane and they say, put on your own mask first, then take care of Correct. your child's mask. Right. Yes. That was essentially the mindset that I had to take care of this. Otherwise, yeah my kids were going to be pushing me around in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. So I needed that independence. I needed to focus on basically beating this disease. It was such a full-time job. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I can completely relate. Same, same, very, very,
0: I mean, the same thing happened actually. I got sick and then uh, like you say, the, the, my illness was a, was a drain on the relationship because, Mm -hmm person wasn't receiving the same attention and uh, you know everything else that they felt that they needed and it just it just didn't you know just didn't work it just you know it's imploded you know then I had to essentially start to nurse my own self you know Uh, so it's it's a process but I think it's a it's a necessary process Um, during during that time um, because it's it's a lot to deal with it's a very weighty thing to get that diagnosis and Than trying to crawl your way back to some semblance of a solution. Uh, Did you feel any depression? And if you did,
1: um, how did you deal with it? It's funny you ask because uh, this was the uh, Robert Surgot, who's the head of neuro ophthalmology at Will's Eye Hospital, and he's uh, he's one of the more prominent uh, neuro ophthalmologists in the country. And he was the one who told me he gave me the prognosis of permanent disability, and then he said. Uh, listen, he said to have this degree of multiple sclerosis, it would be unnatural to not go into a deep depression. Okay. And he wrote me a script for Prozac, which I yeah. took the script and I, I put it in my pocket, but I never filled it. And my Good for you. mindset was that I needed to stay sharp mentally. Okay. You know, Cause I, I don't really, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pharmacist. You know, I'm not a, <laughs> right. I, I don't know any of this stuff. Right. And, but I believe that, somehow these antidepressants must somehow dull the senses in a way. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but... No, they do. They do. They're, they, a lot of them
0: act um, neurologically almost like alcohol in terms of... how you know, Alcohol is a depressant and it stops the transmission of certain um,
1: neurotransmitters. And that's essentially what a lot of the, um, the antidepressants do. Yeah, because there were things I set out to do where I, I wanted my mind to be very sharp. Okay. So that was why I uh, basically shunned the antidepressants. So and you didn't take it, but how did you manage it? Because you still had those feelings. It wasn't easy. I became very frustrated. Okay. You know, very angry about what was happening yeah. to me. And I yeah. think I took it out on my children to a okay. to a degree. I mean, I never okay. got physical with them, but right. you know, I, I would lose my temper a lot. Yeah. and. Yeah. I wish I could go back in time on this one now yeah, and yeah, explain yeah. this. Yeah, they'll
0: one day if if and when they go through something, they'll understand. It's it's uh, it's it's hard, you know. It's 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 hard. Um, just I'm sure, you know. As you're talking now, you're saying that you. It sounds like you have a lot of compassion for your dad now that he's gone. Um, yeah. Probably being a little bit older and having lived and understand understanding yourself a little bit mm-hmm. better, so I think you know your, your kids will will uh, will do the same.
1: I hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's yeah. funny. You know, dad was very uh, you know a very contentious relationship in so many ways, <laughs> yes. but you know that saying you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. Yeah, and there are so many times, even yeah. though he was you know abusive, he was this, he was that. You know, I still want to say, oh, dad oh, he's gone. Yeah, You know, still part of me wants to run and tell him and dad, look, I wrote a book. Dad, you know. <laughs> I, you right? know oh, he's, that's right. He's gone. He's you gone. Know. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier about the personal Mount Rushmore.
1: It's a question I like
0: to ask because it really tells um, our listeners a little bit about, you know, who are your personal heroes? You know, who who do you look up to? Who are the people that you look at and say, you know, these, these are the people that have helped me get through.
1: I would say the people who are first on the list would yeah. be people that had accomplished the impossible. Okay, and, and this goes back to books I had read. You know, I got sure. into studying chess for a while. Oh, okay. And uh, one Searching of them was Bobby Fischer. <laughs> <Fisher. laughs> yeah. And here, you know, you have, uh, yeah, he was an anti semite. He was, you know, <laughs> he he was racist. He was, you know, misogynist. He yeah. he, he could probably be president, be president right now. Yes, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> But the thing is, he did something that was impossible. You know, single-handedly, he basically took on an entire culture, the entire Soviet Union. Yeah. And this kid from Brooklyn single-handedly defeats an entire nation. Yeah. Who had, you know, this nation had basically geared and, you know, everything was toward keeping that crown in Soviet hands. And this kid comes in on his own. Yeah. Takes it away. To me, that's an impossibility. Okay. And having studied chess and having studied my 60 memorable games, you begin to understand his mindset, his degree of self-motivation, determination that Mm. chess was not a game to him. It was a fight for his life and he was not going to lose this fight. Wow. That's how determined he was. And if you look at Nando Parado from the, the famous... Plane crash in 1972 in the Andes Mountains. Oh, right,
0: right. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, and, you know, Nando, right, thrown from row nine in the bulkhead, his skulls fractured in four places. They give him up for dead. Right. Three days later, he awakes from the coma. 72 days after the crash, Nando shows up in the foothills. He had gone 37 and a half miles through this mountain range in the winter. Wow. He had never seen snow. No survival training. No food, no equipment, nothing. Yeah, And, you know, mountain climbing teams that reconstructed his route said, what this guy did was was impossible right you know look at roger banister right he first person to run a mile at under four minutes yeah Yeah. that's not possible but yet he does it (laughs) now you've you've got kids at the high school level do it you know right
0: right yeah so it it, the the theme sounds like people that did was uncon did what not only what was unconventional but was supposedly impossible right
1: So if you can say, yeah, multiple sclerosis is an incurable disease. Right. It's not possible. Right. Why am I here? Why is Dr. Walls here? You know, there are people that have reversed this disease. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at one thing that, another thing that got me on this mindset was, um, you know, if you look at clinical trials in the placebo group, you know, why do people in these placebo groups inexplicably improve? Mm. Right. Yeah. Can can yeah. you explain why you know what minoxidil or Rogaine is, right? Yeah, yep. Why do eighteen yep. percent of the men in the placebo group started growing hair where they don't have it?
0: Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's well, what, there's, there's something else at play. Definitely.
1: There's so you know, I believe play. you take you know people like Bobby Fisher, Nando Parado, Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Roger Bannister put these people in a clinical trial placebo group. <laughs> these are the people that get better because they have that. They unknowingly possess that mindset that control that determination to make things happen yeah somehow they
0: mentally don't follow the rules they don't follow the program sure whatever the program is the program is usually you can't do something
1: right remember yeah. one time the world was flat
0: oh i remember <laughs> man, yeah you know i do remember that <laughs> I think i was around
1: yeah remember, what, what happened if you said glacier? the world wasn't flat or <laughs> what happened if you said that you know the right the uh the sun revolves around the earth what would they do to you, you know? <laughs> oh yeah you yeah. get hung right it's yeah. crazy
0: all right we're gonna finish up with a, a, a little fun game I, I call yes or bs
1: i like this go ahead
0: and uh basically if you agree with it you say yes if you don't agree with it you say bs
1: all right, here we go. Should I elaborate? Or? Uh,
0: if you want to, yeah, okay, sure. Go ahead. Uh, Eastern medicine is better than Western medicine.
1: Yes and BS. <laughs> so it's both. You can elaborate on that one. <laughs> well, I think some things in Western medicine are great. You know, I believe, for me, if I wasn't on intravenous steroids, that 1,000 milligrams of methylprednisolone, sure. I'd be a lost cause today. I think okay. it really did things for me. I believe that the, so many of the drugs we have today are essentially ineffective. Okay. And I believe a lot of the Eastern medicine cures are superior, but I wouldn't recommend shunning Western medicine either. Okay. So I, I would be selective. I would pick and choose at that point. Okay. Best of both worlds. I like exactly. it. Exactly. Number two,
0: spinach is healthier than watercress. Yes. All right. You don't have to explain that one. Yo-Yo Ma is the greatest cellist in modern times. Yes. Daily meditation could bankrupt the pharma industry.
1: Yes and BS. When you say okay. the farm industry, you, you is that encompass organic farm as well? I, I'm sorry. I, I should
0: have enunciated better.
1: Pharma. Oh, Pharmaceuticals. Pharma. Pharmaceuticals. I said Food to table.
0: So Pharmaceutical industry.
1: Uh. If I have to give one unilateral answer, I would say BS. I, I, you, we didn't talk
0: about it so far, but I put this in here because it was very, I think, a very important component of your healing, which we haven't talked about yet, is your 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening right. meditation practice mm-hmm. and where you visualized this disease leaving from your body. Exactly. And I think the mental aspect, the belief um, for your Mount Rushmore, um, it, there, there's something about the mental, the connection, the mind body connection and that belief and really not just believing it, but visualizing and mm-hmm. feeling it that creates a better
1: opportunity for healing. Sure. I, I feel, I believe the, the greatest yeah. untapped resource we have is the human mind. Yeah. And if we can learn to harness that, you know, we use to me, we use so little of the human mind and it's yeah. capable of. So much more than we envision. And if we learn the power of the human mind, it's limitless. Yeah, I agree. Number five Bob
0: Caffaro should go to medical school. B- <laughs> BS. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, this is number six. All American presidents should follow a vegetarian diet. Yes. And the
1: last
0: one. Number seven, reading music is easier than writing memoirs. B.S. Okay, I didn't think you would say that. All right. It's funny,
1: that one about the president should be vegetarian. I remember when Jimmy Carter was president, he had a vegetarian meal at the White House. Wow. And the cattle industry went nuts. They went crazy about it.
0: Yeah. I'll
1: never forget this. He had one vegetarian meal and he caught grief about it like you wouldn't believe. Interesting. Interesting.
0: All right. Well, I think that's all for me. Um, unless you have anything else to say, you want to uh, tell the people how they can contact you or how they can read more about your story, and if they have any further questions, how they can reach you.
1: Absolutely. Uh, they can contact me through my website, okay? Uh, Bobcafaro. dot com. Okay. C a f a r o. C a f a r o, like uh-huh. the car Camaro, but substitute an F. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. And Bob, Bob with one O of course, of course. And then, um, let's see, they can also follow me on Facebook, okay, the Bob Kafaro, or Instagram, the Bob Kafaro. Um, one of the other things I did that I tried to do things I never thought I could do. I self published this book. I did everything wow. myself. Wow. You know, I had some people help me with the editing, but okay. everything was done myself. The printing, uh, you know, I don't manually work the printer. I sure. selected my own printer. I self-published it. Wow. You name it. So uh, the book's available through my website. It's okay. available uh, for download on Amazon Kindle. Okay. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm very happy to hear from people, especially to get, uh, you know, positive feedback where people have found my story has helped them and they've sure. basically adopted a, a much healthier, cleaner lifestyle. Yeah. yes, I think it's important. You know we can't change our genetics, but lifestyle is completely under our control yeah agreed agreed well, thank you
0: thank you for coming this was This was definitely a treat, particularly the the musical introduction, the cello introduction, which I really appreciate um music is another healer it's another another way to soothe. I wonder if they should do some studies on looking at cells when when classical music is played if there's any Enhanced uh, regeneration, like we talked about earlier. I wonder. I don't know.
1: Well, I know, I know the brain. I, I've read studies where the brain fires at such, you know, breakneck speed with so many multitasking events happening, and you know, it's it's crazy. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right, Seiku thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure.
0: You, you're more than welcome. Thank you for coming, for making the time. Um, um, we will see you on the next podcast. And I'm signing off. And as always, remember the truth will set you free if you let it.